Well, take your Bibles this morning, open them to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. We will be looking at verse 14 as we continue in our series, Living the Ten Commandments. So we come today to the seventh commandment. One quick announcement, next week, some of our kids are on fall break this week, but some kids will be on fall break next week. That happens to include my kids and Pastor Jim's grandkids. So both of us are, will be here all week long, both next week and the week after, but we are both planning on being out of town next weekend. So you have the privilege of hearing Pastor Ben preach for the very first time. So he's holding down the fort over the weekend while, uh, while both of us get away over fall, our kids and grandkids fall break. And so um, we'll be back. Um, my kids are off Friday and Monday. So run into Indianapolis. Going to see an old friend from seminary I haven't seen in 10 years. So look forward to that. So Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. Would you please stand in honor of God's word? And before I read this passage, would you pray with me the prayer on the screen? Show me your ways, O Lord, teach me your paths, guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior and my hope is in you all day long. Amen. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Amen. You may be seated. In July 2015, the popular website, Ashley Madison, known for allowing married people to cheat on their spouses, was compromised. Hackers asked that the website shut down immediately or they would release the identities of all 37 million members. You heard me right, a dating website for married men and women. Men and women who want their identities kept secret. The fact is, adultery is something that most people want to keep a secret. And it's something that in the church we're really probably not that comfortable talking about. And yet, it is a topic that we discover here in God's Word as we work our way through the Ten Commandments. And we discover that today, God wants to provide us with a biblical foundation for and a call to sexual faithfulness. God wants to provide us with a biblical foundation for and a call to sexual faithfulness. Today, if you'd like to take notes, they'll be on the screen, as I, and uh, those notes will have the major points as I work through this message. But just like last week, when we looked at the passage, you shall not murder, and we realized that you have to set that commandment within the broader context of Scripture. So here, when we hear this commandment, you shall not commit adultery, We, as God's people, have to set it in the broader context of all of Scripture, going back to Genesis and seeing how God created men and women and created marriage, but also looking at teaching from the New Testament and what God has called his people to follow and the ways he's called them to walk in. And so, we need to see in the background a couple things. The first is about marriage, and we discover that marriage is a sacred institution that creates oneness. Marriage is a sacred institution that creates oneness. When we say it's a sacred institution, that word sacred, I looked it up in multiple dictionaries this week trying to figure out what does it mean when we say marriage is sacred? And the best definition I came up with in the Oxford Dictionary is just something that is dedicated to God. And so oftentimes we consider different things sacred. For example, I won't tell you which child in the church, but there was a child 
in the church one day who they saw the altar rail here and they saw this brown strip of wood that runs parallel to this brown strip of wood. And wouldn't that be fun to walk on both of them and to balance yourself across them? And so long after church is done, as I look in here, I see one of the children in the church walking across this. And that would be an offense to most people because we consider the altar rail sacred. And so we instructed the child, that, that's not proper. That's probably not the best thing to do. And so because we've dedicated it for a use for God. And we discover marriages to be given ultimately not just to a husband or to a wife, but ultimately it's done in the presence of God. It's received from God and given to Him. Marriage is a sacred institution that creates oneness. And that term oneness is interesting. Sometimes when we talk about oneness, we think, well, in marriage, that is a physical oneness. It is the act of intercourse. And there's truth to that. That's implied within Scripture, but it's more than that. Sometimes we think, well, it's the practical oneness that you got to work out one budget. You got to figure out what to do with your cars. You got to figure out what to do with your schedule. You got to figure out how to mesh life together. Two people living one life together. And that's true as well. But I also think, I think there is a mystery involved in it too. That when Paul says the two become one flesh, and he says, now this is a mystery. Of course, I'm talking about Christ and the church. I realize that he's talking, there's a mystery about how the church is the bride of Jesus Christ. That's how scripture refers to the people of the church. But I think there's also the mystery that two, somehow in the sight of God, really become one. And there is a mystery there. There is a connection that's more than just a document you signed at the end of a wedding ceremony that makes you legally married. There is an actual oneness that occurs. And so with those definitions in mind, I say marriage is a sacred institution that creates oneness. You'll notice these things. It is created by God for oneness. And you'll have to write these down. I don't think I have these on the screen. They're the, the sub-points here. But it is created by God for oneness. If we go back to Genesis chapter 2, verses 22 to 24, it says, Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. You'll notice in this passage, this is what God has done. It says here, the Lord God made the woman from the rib he had taken on the man, and he brought her to the man. It's almost, if we were to put that in modern terms, it's almost the image of this. And God walked her down the aisle. And God is the one who brings him to the man. God is the one who oversees this first marriage and blesses it. For he's the one who has created it and arranged it by bringing the woman to the man. But not only, therefore, is it sacred because God has brought it together, it also creates a oneness. You discover that the woman is taken from the side, the rib of Adam. There's a there was a little boy once who was sitting in Sunday school class and they were teaching about where Adam and Eve came from and they were working through this passage in Genesis chapter 2 and they went over the story that Eve had come from the rib of Adam. Well, the next day rolled around and he was just a young boy, wasn't in school yet and 
his mom didn't hear him making any noise or anything. And so she went looking for him that morning and said, and she found him laying on his bed. And she thought, well, this is odd. Something must be wrong. He must not be feeling right because he is never laying down and resting. He's always up and on the go. And so she asked him, so what's going on? What's wrong? And he said, I don't feel good. And he said, and I got a pain. He said, it's right here in my side. He said, I think I must be having a wife. Well, he had listened to his lesson that day. But God does something. He, 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 what he takes apart, do you notice? Then he brings them back together, not just into a union, but into a reunion. Where who was Adam by himself, God creates man and woman, and now he brings them back together into oneness. So he's the one who brings them. It is his it is his marriage that he is arranging, so it is a sacred act, and it produces a oneness out of the reunion of the man and the woman. So marriage is a sacred institution that creates oneness. We see that, too, in the teaching of Jesus. When he's asked about divorce, he responds in Matthew 19, verses 4 to 6, Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but they are one. He says, therefore, what God has joined together. Notice it's not what humanity, it's not what the pastor or a priest or a judge. What God has joined together, let man not separate. So we see that marriage is a sacred institution that creates oneness because it is created by God for oneness. Also, it is protected by God for oneness. That's obvious in this command that we have here in the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery. God is protecting the oneness of marriage. It also comes in the teaching on divorce that we see in Scripture. Once again, God is protecting oneness. So it is protected by God for oneness. And finally, it is representative of the oneness between God and his people, and between Jesus and the church. In Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul writes, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. And sometimes we think that marriage is, like, is a picture of Christ and the church. And that's exactly what it is to be because Jesus and the church is God's first plan. Marriage is the reflection of that. And so we discover marriage is a sacred institution that creates oneness. The other thing we have to understand is, so before we can understand this command, you shall not commit adultery, we have to set it within the context of marriage. Marriage is for oneness, and it is sacred. Also, we have to realize that we have to narrow it down and set it within another context within Scripture, and that is this. Sex is, sacred, is a sacred act that signifies and fulfills oneness. Sex is a sacred act that signifies and fulfills oneness. We'd have to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 to 17. But there, God's word says, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will also raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute 
is one with her in body. For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. We don't often talk about sex in the church, partially because it is a private act, also because we tend to think that it is something that is dirty or wrong, but that's never the picture of Scripture. It is a gift from God, so it is sacred, and it is to be used in the way God intended. So it should be a sacred act, and it produces a oneness between a man and a woman. And I think that that is something that our culture has missed. When our culture thinks of sexuality, I think we tend to think of it in terms of just a physical act. It's just something we do, and if you engage in it, then when you're done, it's done, and it's over with. And I don't think we realize that the act of sexuality creates a oneness between two people. And I think that's significant for our culture to wrestle with and to grapple with. I remember years ago, I was at a church and um, some of the young adults in the church were putting on a play and there were no words spoken in the play but there was acting and you could tell what was going on. There was a young woman who played the one part and, and she went like this and, and there were sound effects. You could hear a, a heartbeat. And she, she walked around and then out from behind the curtain walked a young man and he, he looked at her and he winked at her and, and you could tell, oh, there must be something there, a little bit of chemistry going on. And so, she looked at him, and he was going, thump, 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 thump. And, and then after a few moments, as they interacted with one another, she took this motion of her heart, and she handed it to him. And he received it, oh, and he went, thump, 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 thump. And then he held her heart, and then as they talked, you could see they started to argue, and they started to fight, and he went, thump, 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 thump. And then all of a sudden, he said, hmm. and he went like this, and he threw her heart to the ground. And he walked off stage. And you could see her there. She knelt down on the ground and she, she picked the pieces up and she put it back together. She looked at it. And it wasn't long after that, another person came walking up from a different direction in the church. He made eye contact with her and her with him. And the same thing ensued. You could tell there was an interest between them. And after a little while, she handed the man her heart. And after some troubles... He said, enough, and he set it on the, on the pulpit, and he walked away. And she went, and she pulled the pieces together, and she put it back together. And it was interesting in the drama that there was something learned that every time we give ourselves away, we give a piece of ourselves away that we never get back. Because we have to face the reality that sexuality creates a oneness. And you can never except by God's grace that washes us clean. You can never undo that. And so there's always a part that is connected in there to that person. Did you know that our marriage ceremony shows the importance of sexuality? When we make a covenant with someone, we're told it is to be signed and sealed. You ever hear that phrase, signed and sealed? Well, when, when a people get married, it is to be signed and sealed, so to speak. One of the signing, you might say, is when they stand before one another and they make their vows to one another. I will have you to hold from this day forward for richer, for poorer. And they go through the vows and they exchange those vows back and forth. The sealing of the marriage comes in the honeymoon 
and the uniting of the couple and sexuality, where they physically become one. However, I learned something. You would think that a person who's been a pastor as long as I have would know this and with education would know this, but I'm entirely oblivious. And I figured if I'm oblivious, hopefully there's at least one other person in this church that's as oblivious as I am. But I was, as I was studying this week, I've discovered something, that at the end of the wedding ceremony, the pastor will say this, say to the couple, you may now kiss the bride. And I just thought, well, you so now you kiss the bride. It's just tradition. It's the way it's done. It's the way you end the ceremony. And I realized something. I was taught something this week, that that is the sealing of the marriage covenant. Because obviously sexual intercourse is a private thing that is not to be done in public. The kissing of the bride is but the small act that is a memento of what is to take place on the honeymoon between the man and the woman that is appropriate for public display, symbolizing the sealing and the coming together of the marriage in private. And so, when the pastor says, you may now kiss the bride, they are saying, this will be sealed through the uniting of a man and a woman in intimacy. And so, there's significance in the kissing of the bride, because that is the proper public display of what will then happen later in private. Because when two people engage intimately, they become one. And so sex is a sacred act that signifies and fulfills oneness. Finally, we've said it in the context of marriage as a sacred institution that creates oneness. Sex is a sacred act that signifies and fulfills oneness. But then there is one more step that we must take, and that is Set it in the context of the body. The body is a sacred creation intended for oneness. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it says this, Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. And so the thought is you can do with your body whatever you want. That's what the culture says. But God says this. God formed your body. We see that in Genesis chapter 2 when God forms Adam's body out of the dust of the ground. God, in this passage we discover, will resurrect your body one day. God indwells your body as a Christian, for you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And God owns your body with the price of Calvary. For Jesus has bought you with his own blood. And therefore, the body is sacred, a sacred creation intended for oneness. And it's into that context of marriage and sex and body that we never talk about in church, and yet our culture struggles with over and over, and we see it everywhere we turn, on TV and in magazines and on websites. Into that context, God now says, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. You'll note this, the act of adultery is theft. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, it says, you shall not commit adultery. The idea there is really, it's protecting your neighbor's marriage. It's not really worded in such a way as to say, be faithful to your spouse. It's worded in such a way as to say, if your neighbor is married, the husband and wife belong to one another, and you have no business interfering. In the Old Testament, And in the ancient world, the way they looked at it is you were stealing a spouse of someone else if you engaged in adultery. And so one of the 
perspectives we need to have is that the act of adultery is theft. It is taking what does not rightly belong to us. When we get to the New Testament, we discover something else. The heart of adultery is impurity. In Matthew chapter 5, we read from it earlier in the service. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, this is a passage you may have heard. It's even been, sometimes it's been in the, the broader public. Years ago, those of you who are old enough will remember back when Jimmy Carter was president. And uh, he made quite a splash in regards to this Bible verse. He probably unwisely... Uh, definitely unwisely in my book, but even from a political standpoint, unwisely chose to do an interview with Playboy magazine in which they asked him in the interview if he had ever committed adultery. And Jimmy Carter comes from a Baptist background and he knew, knows the Bible and different verses in the Bible. And so his answer was this. It didn't win him any political points, but he said this. I have looked on a lot of women with lust. I have committed adultery in my heart many times. What he said may be true and true of many people, but it wasn't what the public wanted to hear nor was comfortable hearing. But the fact is this, the heart of adultery is impurity. And we have to face the fact in the church that God's people struggle with this. This is a struggle. Some of you, I've referenced it in the past, you've heard of Promise Keepers, the men's gatherings um, that happened in the 90s where they would fill an entire stadium with men who would gather together to commit themselves to God and to worship God, to commit themselves to their wives, to commit themselves to their children. And during the Promise Keepers movement, they decided to do a survey once of the sexual behavior of the men attending. So they took a sample of 1,500 men at Promise Keepers events. And this is what they discovered among men at these events. Of the 1,500 men at the Promise Promise Keepers gatherings, 51% of the sample reported struggles with masturbation, 51% fantasized about having sex with women other than their wives, 74% reported that their sexual thoughts concerned them, 15% reported they were sexually unfaithful to their spouse, 33% reported enjoyment and looking regularly at sexually oriented material including videos and magazines. We have to face the fact we don't probably like this commandment because it hits too close to home. It's a problem. And what's interesting is across church history, it's always been a problem. It's not anything new. It's not like the sexual revolution is new in the world. God's people and the world has struggled obeying God's design for sex ever since the beginning. And yet people struggle with it. And when we read this verse where it is a call for purity, not just the purity of action, but now purity of our minds and thoughts, it is often applied to men because men, for the most part, are people that are stimulated by sight. And so it becomes a greater challenge, so it seems from this passage, from Jesus saying that the man who has thought has committed adultery in his heart because we're challenged to have clean thoughts. And I remember hearing a preacher one time talking about this and he told a story about how a young man came up to him after a message on this very topic. And he said, said, preacher, I have to confess to you. He said, I have sinful thoughts run through my mind. And Dr. Charles Lake was the pastor. Some of you may have heard of him. Dr. Charles Lake said, whoa, 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 stop just a minute. He said, you're telling me that you have improper thoughts that run through your mind. Is that right? And the young man said, yes. He said, no, let me 
double check just again for a second. You're saying you have improper thoughts that run through your mind about women. He said, yes. He said, good. And the young man looked at him and said, what do you mean good? He said, well, if you're telling me the truth, you said you're telling me the truth, right? He said, absolutely telling you the truth. He said, well, that's good because you said that you have improper thoughts that run through your mind. He said, as long as they are going through and they don't stop, we're in great shape. He said, the problem is when there's impure thoughts that stay in your mind. He said, the passage doesn't say that you will not ever notice a pretty woman. The passage says you will not lust after another woman. And so he said, you can't let the thoughts stay in your mind. He said, whatever comes into your mind, you let it go out of your mind. And sometimes we read this and we think, well, that applies to men. And you women are sitting there and saying, boy, men have a problem. And the truth is, you could probably look at what is shown on the internet, and you're right, men do have a problem. But men aren't the only ones. Women also have a challenge in this area. First of all, the amount of women who, are now, who now view improper images of men is steadily on the increase in America. Second of all, we have to realize that an impure mind isn't just looking at images like in a Playboy magazine. We have to also understand something else. That having an impure mind means fantasizing about romances that don't really exist. And I've found something to be true in churches that I've served and Christians that I've interacted with that women love, it used to be soap operas when I was a kid and all the romance that happened there. Uh, romance novels, those steamy, nice novels where the men and the women are together that guys never pick up a book and read, but women devour one after the other. And then most recently in movies like Fifty Shades of Grey and its sequel that came out just a couple years ago. And I discovered something. It's not just a man issue, it's a woman issue just in a different way. That there are plenty of women who love to read and have come across stories in which they fantasize romances that are illicit and improper. And so Beth, both men and women are called by Jesus to understand that the heart of adultery is impurity. And we are called to be pure, to have pure minds and to have pure hearts. Now you might say, well, pastor, this is only about adultery. It's not about any other sexual sins. And I would say that as we read this passage, first of all, the history of interpretation on this commandment shows that across the ages, Christians have realized that when, Jesus, when God says, do not commit adultery, that that is kind of the umbrella and that every other sexual sin fits underneath that as well. Because most people understand, even non-Christians, adultery is messing with somebody else's marriage and somebody else's home. And that other sexual sins that the world might permit, we should understand, are encompassed probably within this command. But surely when Jesus says, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, he gets from the act of adultery, taking it to the heart that realizes that any sexual promiscuity is a violation of this command. And so we discover the heart of adultery is impurity. Finally, there is another issue that's dealt with in God's word that we may not connect very often, and that is this, that the religion of adultery is idolatry. Now, I get my tongue twisted when I say that, but the religion of adultery 
is idolatry. What is surprising in Scripture is that God hates adultery, but the reason why isn't just because it messes up marriage. The reason is because every good marriage is a reflection. It is a picture of God's relationship to His people, of the relationship between Jesus and the church, because the church is the bride of Christ. And adultery, adultery, it's not just the human marriage, but it all of a sudden tarnishes the image of what exists in the spiritual realm. And so all through Scripture, every time the Israelites are unfaithful to God, it is called adultery. Even if they were perfectly faithful to their spouse, spiritually it is called adultery. In fact, the prophets hammer at home. Jeremiah in chapter 3, verses 6 to 9 says, During the reign of King Josiah, the Lord said to me, Have you seen what the faithless Israel has done She's gone up on every high hill and under every spreading tree and has committed adultery there. Now, if you were to read that, not knowing the context, you'd think, well, some, there's a couple having adultery up on a hill underneath a tree. But that's not what it means. In the ancient world, they would find hills. That's where they would build their idols. And that's where they would worship the idols. So they're called the high places in Scripture. So it's saying Israel would adulterate itself by worshiping the gods of the Canaanites and the Moabites and adulterate itself by worshiping anything other than God. Hosea, the prophet, was called to marry an adulteress that his marriage might be an example of what Israel had done to their Lord. So anytime we worship anything other than God, we become adulterers. Spiritual adulterers. Now, I know everybody's sitting there and thinking, wow, I can't even believe he used some of those words in a church service. And to be honest, I don't enjoy preaching on it. But as you hear this, you hear it in different ways. Some of you here today, you wouldn't tell anyone, but you are tempted. Satan is tempting you sexually to be unfaithful whether that's unfaithful to your spouse right now, or maybe someday you look forward to being married and then being unfaithful to that future spouse whom you should be keeping yourself for. And you are tempted. And like Joseph in the Old Testament, who was serving in Potiphar's house and was managing the house, and Potiphar's out, gone one day, and Potiphar's wife comes in and says, Joseph, you're a handsome man. Why don't we go to bed together? Joseph runs and God would say to you today, if you struggle with temptation, then you have to figure out how to run and to run away from it. Some of you may have seen the movie, had Kirk Cameron years ago. It was about marriage, and it's, the name is blanking my mind, Fireproof. And I uh, remember one of the temptations he faced was what was on the computer screen. And so the way he finally had the run is he realized the computer went out at the end of the driveway and the baseball bat went to the computer. Because sometimes there are good things, but we can't control them. And the only thing we can do in our life is to run away from them, to get rid of them, and to say, you know what? You know, a computer's not a bad thing. It can be used for the glory of God, and good things can happen through it. But if I struggle with it, goodbye. And in today's world, I, I, you would be amazed how many screens I have in my house. I like technology, so I have a the original iPod, touch iPod, because I thought that was the coolest thing when you could touch a screen and make it things. So I have an original iPod, I have a Kindle, uh, all three of my kids have a Kindle. I have an iPad. We have two Chromebooks. We have the Mac downstairs, the PC upstairs. 
And I'll be honest, I am terrified. I have at least 10 screens in my house. I am terrified. How do I keep two boys as they grow up away from the trash that is on the internet? That you can access anywhere. That doesn't include my cell phones. So that's, that's, we got two more cell phones and an old cell phone. So that's three more screens everywhere. And what does God say? To those of us in temptation, we have to figure out how to run because the devil is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he would love nothing more than to devour that which is to be a picture of Jesus and his church. Some of you are sitting here today and you are in sin. No one may know it. They may not know the relationship you have. But you right now are in sin, and maybe you haven't even faced up to it yourself. And you need to come like Isaiah when he was confronted with God. You need to catch a fresh glimpse of the glory and the holiness and the righteousness of God. And when you do that, you will see it say, Woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, and I am ruined. And some of you need to be ruined by the conviction of sin in your life this day. You need to do nothing more than to fall on your face and repent before God and to ask for his grace to forgive you and to make you whole and clean. Some of you are sitting here and you're broken. Most people, if they could tell the truth, and none of us would want to do that, but most people wish they could go back some point in their life and erase something. The other night I was doing devotions with my kids. We have this little Adventures in Odyssey devotional book we've been using. And um, the, other, the devotional the other night said, get a pencil. And they said, what's at one end of the pencil? And, uh, you know, it's the lead. I said, what's at the other end? An eraser. I said, what's an eraser for? To get rid of your mistakes. Some of you wish there's an eraser for life. And you're not alone. I guarantee you this room is filled with people who wish they could erase something, even in this area from their past. And you want to know what? The good news is there is an eraser. Because God isn't the God who just looks down. He does say that adultery is sin and sexual morality is sin, but he doesn't condemn us in that. Instead, he dies for us in that. And so when Jesus was confronted with a woman who was caught in adultery and the religious leaders bring him to Jesus and says, the law says to stone her, and Jesus starts scribbling in the sand. And he says, well, you who are without sin cast the first stone. And one by one, each leader walks away. Because I guarantee you the truth is there is not a person in this room who isn't whether physically or mentally or in their heart, their spiritual heart has adulterated against either a person or against God. And Jesus looks up at the woman and he says, is there no one to condemn you? He says, then neither do I. Go and sin no more. And the good news is, is that by the grace of God, we can go and sin no more. And David, when he had committed an affair with Bathsheba, 
he writes in the Psalms, and he says in Psalm 51, cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. The blood of Christ can wash away every sin, and God can make us whole and complete in him. And I want you to know today that if you are broken because of your past, Jesus is greater than your sins. Jesus is greater than your sins. And he, if you will confess your sins, is faithful and just and will forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Did you catch that? Not some unrighteousness, not recent unrighteousness, not little unrighteousness, but he can cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Some of you hear this message, and when you hear the word adultery, you don't need to run, you don't need to repent, you don't need to receive the forgiveness of God. Some of you are hurting because you've been on the receiving end. Someone in your life, a friend, a family member, has torn apart the foundation of what you had always hoped for in a family. And you're hurting. And God invites you simply to rest in his care. God's word says in Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. And some of you are crushed, and God knows. And I believe God cries with you. And you can offer him all the tears and all the brokenness and all the pain and ask him to make something beautiful out of it for his glory and his name's sake. There's all different groups of people here who have been touched by adultery. Some of you are tempted, some of you are sinning, some of you are broken, some of you are hurting. I'd like to wrap up and speak to those of you who are sinning. It was several years ago, I was in a situation, I had people in church coming up to me and saying, hey, pastor, can I talk to you for a second? And I said, okay. And they would call me aside and say, can we step into your office? Hey, can we... Can we go in this back room, and I, I, I got to tell you something. I say, okay. And multiple people are coming up to me and said, there's something funny going on in, in the relationship between this, these two people in the church. It said, and they're not married. They're both married, but they're not married to each other. And it just, it just something doesn't seem to look right. It said, do you, do you know of anything? I said, I don't know of anything. And I said, well, I said, we're just concerned what's going on. And I said, okay. And I was a young pastor. I didn't know what to do. So I got on the phone and I called my district superintendent, who even in Ohio happened to be Joe Winger. So I'm blessed. Wherever I go, Joe Winger is there. So, uh, um, so I got on the phone to Joe and, and I said, what do I do? What am I supposed to do? I'm a young guy. I don't know anything um, how to deal with this. There's, there's people that are concerned about this. And he said, well, John, he said, it won't be comfortable. He said, you need to go to the man. And he said, sit down and just look at him point blank and say, hey, is there anything going on between you and this other woman? And you're just going to have to ask him. So that's all you can do. And I said, okay, I'll do that. So I made, I made an arrangement. After a services, one, 
uh, one Sunday evening, I, said, I asked, I said, hey, would it be possible for you to come back to my house? I said, I need to talk to you about a sensitive matter. And uh, the person said, sure, I'd be glad to do that. So they came over to my house, sat down on the kitchen table. I said, you want anything to drink? I said, I, I got pop, milk, water. He said, I'll have a glass of water. I said, okay. So I got him a glass of water. I sat down and I said, this is uncomfortable for me to ask. I said, but... Um, the way you've interacted with one of the other women in the church, I said, is there anything going on between you and this person? And they looked across at me and they said, said, no, there's absolutely nothing going on. We're just friends. I said, there's nothing going on at all. And I said, okay. I said, well, I'm glad to hear that. I said, but you need to realize then that the way you're interacting with her is setting off the wrong signals. And so therefore, I said, you probably shouldn't do this. And I laid out a couple things. I said, those, those things don't look good. And he said, okay. He said, I'll, I'll stop doing that. And so over the course of the next couple weeks, all of a sudden there seemed to be a lot of antagonism towards me, towards some other people in the church, and things just weren't going well. And two months later, it all came out. He divorced his wife. She divorced her husband. They married each other, took 20% of our church out of it at that time and they finally admitted to all of it that it had all been true and he sat at my kitchen table across from me face to face eye to eye I looked him straight in the eye and I said are you doing anything immoral with this woman and he looked me blank in the eye and he said no and he lied through his teeth. Some of you here today are lying to God. You are lying to your spouse. You are lying maybe to your future spouse. And you are engaged in activity that God has forbidden because marriage, sex, and the body are all sacred and meant for oneness. And God calls you today, and he says, repent. Repent of your sin. And I thought about doing an altar call at the end of the service, you know, wondering if anybody would need to come forward and repent. And I realized that's not good for you. It's not really healthy for our church. I don't want to see somebody kneeling at the altar and thinking, boy, what are they doing in their life? I have a challenge for you today. Maybe today you are the person who is seated here and you know that God is speaking to you. And you know that you are an adulterer in your heart and he's calling you to repent before God. If that is you today, this is what I'm asking you to do. It is not to come forward. It's not to come and even to tell me. It is in this moment, right now, think of somebody you know and you trust beyond the shadow of a doubt to be godly and to be confidential. Let that name come to mind, somebody who is godly and confidential. And when this service is done, this afternoon, not tomorrow, not tonight, this afternoon, you call that person whom you know will love you because they are committed to Jesus Christ. They will be confidential. You start by confessing it because there is no way to know the forgiveness of God nor the purity of God or the righteousness and the holiness that God brings without first confessing our sins and asking for forgiveness.
And so go to that person and say, I have to talk to you and, and let them know. It's not going to be a comfortable conversation, but you need to know this. I have been lying through my teeth because I have been living an immoral life and God wants me to change. And by his grace, I'm asking for his forgiveness and by his grace, I'm asking for your help today. Because God says this, you shall not commit adultery. Let's pray. Father, we're broken people. And the flood of emotions as I think about the hurt people in the room. So I think about the broken people in the room. So I think about those who just, day in, day out, they keep in the fight, running from temptation. But the most dangerous place to be is in sin. And I pray today for the person who's lying through their teeth. May they repent. And Lord, I pray in your grace, not only will you forgive them, will you deliver them. And may they come to know the sacredness and the oneness that you have intended and you want your people to delight in, in marriage, in sex, and in body. It's been a hard topic, Lord. The truth is, we, your people, need your help to be all the people you want us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said,